Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. I'm Eric. This is our first time recording in like three months. This is our first time recording since moves and job changes and stuff like that. Random opposite schedules. Entirely opposite schedules. But we're back and we're here to discuss some smut or rather a magazine whose cover would make you think it's smuttier than it actually is. I described it as looking like a straight man's cum rag. You pushed that description a lot further than I would, but okay. Listeners, we're discussing Pulp Volume 1, Number 1. This is a magazine put out by Viz Media in the late 90s. It lasted for about five years before its cancellation. We're just discussing the very first issue. This is cover dated December 1997. There's a nice little for mature readers only disclaimer in the top corner. And the cover illustration, as we said at the end of last time. As the token straight, I just think she needs a sandwich. Yeah, it's this young woman. This is an illustration of a character from Dance Till Tomorrow, which we'll discuss in a few minutes. Oh, it's meant to be her? Yeah, it's her. I assumed it was the girl from Strain. Yes, yeah, is the Dance Till Tomorrow artist. Okay. Yeah, but essentially it's the like simultaneous look down at side boob through the hole in the tank top and also up the panty. Just emaciated looking young girl makes this look like it's about to be a filthy magazine for mature readers only. And some of Pulp gets there, but this first issue doesn't really. Um, essentially, Pulp ran, as I said, for about five years. In the late 90s, early 2000s, manga landscape in the United States was very different from now. There was very little before this in the way of manga magazines in the States. And Viz wanted to make a lot of inroads. There's a series of articles that came out last year on the site Manga Planet by former executive VP of Viz Media, Hioe Narita. I'll drop like a link to those in the description, but basically just provided a lot of background on his time at Viz and about Pulp in specific. But yeah, they wanted to publish types of manga that hadn't really been published in English before. They wanted to try bringing over some of the magazine culture to a United States publication, to an American publication, and the result is this magazine that I've read the entire thing. I have the entire collection of Pulp's run. Spoiler-wise, we're only going to be discussing what's in this very first issue, the debut chapters of Banana Fish, Black and White, Dance Till Tomorrow, Strain, and Heartbroken Angels. If I remark anything about my like overall impressions of the series, I'll keep it totally spoiler-free and short, but you've only read these first ones, and that's all we'll be really be discussing in depth. This is our first time discussing any sort of anthology on the podcast. 
I suppose I'll open up with what did you think of that and how do you feel about how all these sort of gel together? What sort of impression did Pulp leave on you? Considering it says manga for grown-ups, a couple of these were very juvenile. The, yeah. There's a large chunk of those adult books that are like adult in the sense that they are like, oh, we can say naughty words and talk about boobies. Adult in the sense that Family Guy is adult and I was watching it in fifth grade. <laughs> yes. Um, like, some of them definitely have the potential. Like, I, there's not enough of the ones that are good for me to say whether this is a good series or not, I would say. Like, Strain, I think, is a interesting start. But I don't know whether it is actually something I like. Because there's not enough of it for me to make a decision. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of the thing about a magazine like this is I wanted to try, you know, covering it, covering an anthology type thing is sort of an experiment. We haven't done it before, but that also does lead to the feeling of if all you're getting is chapter one, it's completely understandable that you don't really know what you're getting into. You know, it's a very brief introduction. And especially with the way manga's written, like, a lot of the old anthologies that we could do from, like, Marvel or DC or, like, other American publications, they'll tell relatively complete stories in those chunks normally. Whereas with these, it feels like reading one issue of a Brian Michael Bendis comic. Damn. I think a little more happens in a couple of them. <laughs> I don't think it's quite at that level, but yeah, yeah, I understand the sentiment. Which isn't me, like, that? I that's just... It, incidental thing for the way that like manga's typically written i don't think that's a problem with the magazine but it means that there's like a degree to which i'm like i don't have a firm opinion on this yeah some of them i do yeah some of them i have very firm opinions on and some of them i have big notes for and some of them i'm like well this could be good but i really need to see how like another four installments of this handles this subject matter before i decide whether or not this is something that is actually worth reading long term yeah the series in this first issue there's only five manga at the beginning of pulp that's about roughly a third of the manga that would run in the publication throughout its history I think they're varied. I think that's just the inevitability of any anthology is there's going to be a variance in quality. And yeah, like even these five that we start out with here, my opinions range pretty greatly on how much I like them. You know, there's series that come along later in Pulp that I'm like, that was great. And there's also ones that aren't in here that I'm like, that was bad. You know, it's just kind of going to be up to your taste, but... I appreciate just sort of what they were going for in general, you know, looking back historically, I appreciate them wanting to take a chance on some comparatively lesser known titles, at least certainly in America at the time. And, you know, like I appreciate the goal of trying to carry over manga for adult audiences that just was simply much less common to get in English at this time because this is before you would even have dedicated manga shelves at Barnes & Noble and the likes of that, you know? This is pre-Tokyo Pop Boom. This is so old that all of the art in here is flipped. This is back when manga would still be flipped. Yeah, that 
wasn't especially noticeable in these, but I just don't like seeing it. That's that's my flipped manga take. I I I was like, I knew it was flipped because I was reading it the way I normally read a comic, and I was like, well, it's not ruining it, but also I don't like that it's flipped. It's definitely a trip down memory lane. Yeah, we've we've read two flipped mangas now. Yeah, good old Spider Man. Good old, really fucked up Marvel translation job, Spider-Man. That that was a bad reproduction of that comic. I don't understand how they did that so badly. Yeah, but back to Pulp. I'll just quote a brief excerpt of this introduction on the interior of the front cover. Dear Pulp Reader... Hold on tight to this magazine. What you've got in your hot little hands is the premier issue of an unprecedented, leading-edge concept in Japanese comics, not to mention an incredible bargain for your comic dollar. Each humongous 128-page monthly issue features five to six exciting new comics and four jam-packed news and feature columns, plus contests, prizes, special bonuses... The manga of Pulp are drawn so boldly, so explicitly, that you won't be able to tear your eyes off them. It keeps going like this, basically just doing more of the enthusiasm, more of the, this is for grown-ups. Stan Lee, if he had to sell the Japanese equivalent of modern image comics. Yeah. Like I said, I appreciate the enthusiasm here, even though, I guess, predictably... These chapter ones don't get immediately raunchy because you have to introduce the characters before they start fucking each other. So, this is probably one of the tamest issues of Pulp. I sincerely hope the characters of Strain do not wind up fucking each other. I have bad news for you. Great, hey, uh, this just in, I now know enough about Strain to say that I don't like it. Maybe not the couple you're thinking of. (laughs) But, yeah... Strain does some stuff. Um, Speaking of Strain, it is just, and Eric had not seen this movie, but a lot of people will have, it's basically just Leon the Professional. I have no idea when Strain came out in comparison to Leon the Professional, but it is very similar vibes. Yeah. So we're pretty naturally talking about Strain already, and Strain is the first comic chronologically in the issue so we'll just go ahead and dive fully into it unrelated to that tv show about vampires or like the guillermo del toro and chuck hogan i think series of novels that are either adapting the show or the show is adapted from i'm not sure which more things i've never heard of see now if you ever shelved the horror section you would be reminded that that show was a thing for a little bit it's guillermo del toro so it's great but anywho uh, Strain, the roll call is story by Bronson, art by Ryoichi Ikigami, English adaptation credit Yuji Oniki, and lettering and touch-up art by Kato, Kato, and Ikigami we have discussed before because he was the creator of the 70s Spider-Man manga that we discussed months and months ago, but yeah. Yeah, Ikigami. Pretty dang close to a year, yeah, because, yeah. Yeah, how do you like his art here in comparison, I suppose, to what you got in Spider-Man? I think it looks fabulous. There's a lot of detail, and, like, by that, there's, like, a lot of grayscale shading going on. 
that makes me wonder if this was maybe actually like colored at some point yeah like the opening pages are very much giving me the impression that the at least like the first like three pages or so were probably color pages that they just didn't pay for color ink and pulp and then a lot of the um faces still have that aesthetic to me although some of the a lot of the other art goes a little bit more line arty but still like a lot of shots a lot of characters faces especially still like have that that softer like grayscale effect going on yeah there's a lot of detail going on in the work like even in the opening where it's like establishing the setting ikigami loves like a wide shot so we begin just with these shots where the caption like lets us know this is kuala lumpur malaysia and we just open up with these shots of the city with all of these skyscrapers and what looks like watercolor done mountains in the background and yeah like you said this sort of intricacy extends to a lot of the character expressions throughout it's my favorite art in the whole book by a mile i think that's fair i think my favorite aspect of the art in this chapter is that there's a lot of paintings of horses and as we've discussed about five times before now, animals are hard, and horses are especially hard, and these are some very pretty horses, which is a running theme on this show. Uh, we like a good horse, and we will point and laugh at bad horses, even though neither of us could draw a fucking horse. These are good horses, though. Um, Strain is essentially referring to like the title was very weird for me when i started reading it and i was like oh it's referring to a strain of horses like this guy is presumably from a rich family and it's like right like the the, the hitman guy the five dollar hitman guy he is the supposed dead rich person well and no. he's from good breeding like a horse no but that's well a... it's it is the thing of like breeding it's like we're okay. getting yeah, because, like, we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but this basically... This is one of the chapter one, is I'm just trying to, like, guess what the rest of the story is like from basically zero clues. Yeah, but I guess just upfront sort of plot description, we get, like, the opening panning shots of Malaysia just sort of getting a sense of this setting. We then move to seeing a child prostitute trying to get this much older adult man to hire her there's like she succeeds yes she succeeds the exchange he like asks how old she is she says 18 he's like your makeup can't fool me but then he still goes along with her and from there we cut scenes to this bar where the main character of the manga named uh, Mayo is drawing horses. All the art of horses in this manga are like of his studio of like him drawing and painting horses. And we find out that he is an assassin. He's not just good at drawing horses. He is multi-talented and also good at killing people. So just jack of all trades, I guess. And... You have to pay him $5 and he'll kill anyone. Exactly. And he, like, takes jobs that, like, get filtered through this man at the bar who will, like, tell him about potential hits and then he'll decide if he wants to go meet the client. 
and he will take a job for only $5 because he says it's all that we are worth. And as he's talking to the barman about a potential upcoming gig, the aforementioned child prostitute runs in there. The man who had hired her is chasing after her, cursing at her in his towel, screaming about how she had stole some money from him while he went to the shower. He beats her, knocks her wig off, and is just generally smacking her around. He then leaves some money on the table at the bar and apologizes to the bartender for the trouble and then leaves. The child prostitute is, you know, justifiably pissed off that neither Mayo nor the bartender did anything to help the literal child getting beat right next to them. And before she marches out, she's just like, if you know anything about that fellow who knocks people off for $5, let me know. And she says, I want to kill, and then refers to the man with a racial epithet. I won't be repeating, but yeah, she's angry, slaps Mayo on the back with her wig on the way out and leaves. This scene is a lot, because all the stuff with the wig is like, Frankly, a lot of it reads comedically, but kind of awkwardly at the same time, because as we've been saying, this opening is basically just this child sex worker getting abused, but also there's wig comedy. There's a lot going on. And essentially from there... When it's a blonde wig, and then she is presumably Malaysian? Yeah, it doesn't say specifically in this chapter, and it's been so, so it's long. like some racial stuff there too, I would say. If she's dressing up in a blonde wig to try and get clients. Yeah, and like, from the way that she talks about the other man, she herself is not Japanese, but like specifically used like an anti-Japanese phrase regarding yeah, the other man. that's why I assumed Malaysian. Yeah, I think so, but it's been years since I read this series in full, so I can't remember 100%, but I believe that's the case. And after she leaves, she tries to pick up another man who basically tells her to look in a mirror. We get, like, this panel that closes up on her bruised cheek as she, like, gives this sort of, like, forced smile at the man trying to pick him up. Lots of McDonald's product placement in this comic. Yeah, like, the backgrounds, there's like signage on the buildings and such including multiple mcdonald's there's like a lot of mcdonald's like it's shown up like three times in like five pages there's a lot of mcdonald's centric abuse and strain and yeah the panel of like her like forcing a smile with like a bruised cheek is honestly quite effective for me like i think that while, you know, I did mention, like, oh, some of it's a little bit awkward tonally in mixing the comedy of what's happening, but I think some of it does work. And just, like, you know, her struggle, I think, is portrayed pretty well in terms of, like, just conveying that her situation is... We're clearly meant to sympathize with her in yeah. this situation, yeah. Yeah, and, like, the barman, once she leaves, effectively, like, recites all of this to Mayo and effectively the reader saying she's only 12 or 13 and she's already been through this many times she doesn't work for any organization she walks the streets alone her life will be full of pain and after witnessing this and hearing all this mayo or 
Mayo goes to meet up with his next client. But on the way, he beats the crap out of that one guy. Yeah, he, like, sees the guy wobbling around drunkenly on the street and fully decks him. Strain will have panels where it'll be, like, an action shot and the level of, like, depth of detail will, like, be extremely heightened compared to the way that the characters are drawn on the rest of page around them. So, like, we get this panel with a really emphasized, detailed, just shot of Mayo's fist just hitting this guy in the cheek. We see blood spurting out, a tooth fall out. We see, like, the glasses as they're falling off the face. If this was a Zack Snyder movie, this is the bit that would be in slow-mo. Yeah, exactly. It's the slow-mo shots. And then, like, the very next panel... The guy's, like, practically all the way on the ground again, having fallen all the way over. This is, like, the action pow moment. Lots of mouth blood. Yeah. And from there, Mayo goes to meet up with a potential client. And they don't specify, but what must be... I keep saying Mayo or Mayo inconsistently, because I'm not sure which it's supposed to be here. And I think it might be Mayo, but that also feels so silly to say. I know because I've been of the mayonnaise. <laughs> yeah, with in, in in English, yes, it does get a little strange. Yeah, so I'm not name. entirely sure which one it is, but they're in what is assumedly a workshop of his that just has all of these beautiful paintings of horses. It's like a two-page spread of. If he's only getting five dollars a kill, how on earth does he afford all of this art supply stuff? I do not know. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out, like, like, okay, okay, I get the ideological idea of, like, human life is only worth five bucks. I don't get how that allows him to afford anything. Yeah, as I've said before, I it's been a long time since I read my full collection, so my memory of the series beyond this is hazy. I don't remember, like, if he has another job that actually pays the main bills or not. But... Or is he just, like, managing three kills an hour? Truly. To get, like, something close to a living wage. <laughs> to get mini- free kills an hour to get, like, minimum wage. <laughs> but... No, what should be minimum wage, which is the most disturbing thing. Yeah, or, like, still wouldn't be high enough, but would be better than now. Anywho, just the studio is full of all these beautiful paintings of horses. It's just a two-page spread of the room just really lets you take in all the majesty of these beautiful, beautiful horses. Andrew Hussey would love it so much. You don't know who that is yet. We're going to talk about Homestuck soon. Then you'll know. Point being, horses. Yeah. And so this guy hires Mayo to go make a kill. When he arrives at the site, he realizes that the person he's been hired to kill is the mother of the teenage prostitute who barges in in the middle of it, is, like, pleading for him not to do it. And essentially, he tells her, I was hired to do this. Just pay me the $5 I was paid to do this back so that I don't do it. And then pay me another 5 to make another kill. And so he arrives back to meet the man who had contracted him, pulls out his gun, shoots a bullseye straight through the middle of his forehead... And, yeah, he kills the bitch, and we then transition to Japan, where there is a meeting between 
a businessman, uh, Mr. Shunichiro Kusaka, who is referred to as the leader of a Japanese corporation named Kusaka. And he's talking to the Sufferman about business stuff and also horses and horse raising, horse races, horse betting. And it's here at the very end where this man effectively does the name drop for the title where he says, Lineage is absolutely essential when it comes to racehorses. We have maintained our bloodlines and breed, our particular strain. And... Well, this is why I assumed... Because, well, so someone, like, talks to the CEO guy about having seen Mayo. And, like, he's like, oh, that's impossible because Mayo died. And I assumed that meant that Mayo was connected to this guy in some way. I was like, okay, is it, like, a family business and this is his brother? Because we're talking about breeding. Essentially, yeah. Yeah, the strain, thematic importance in the title. Although it, like, comes up here in context of, like, horse breeding, it is basically about, like, the concept of, like, familial strain, blood ties. And thank you for mentioning, like, the whole thing of... Oh, you can't have seen him. He he shouldn't be alive. It doesn't explicitly state here what the relationship is in chapter one, but we're essentially ending on the cliffhanger, establishing that there's some sort of mysterious connection and that those sorts of connections are going to be thematically important going forward. Yeah, that's why I, I guessed he was from like a, a rich family and that this was another member of the rich family from the same generation. Yeah. I'll neither confirm nor deny simply for spoilers' sake of what's in this one, but yeah. Um, I suppose do you have any more thoughts on Strain before we move forward? The art looked great. The story is off to an interesting start. From what you said, it sounds like I maybe wouldn't wind up enjoying it, but like it wasn't it wasn't a bad start. Yeah, like my impression of Strain overall is that it's like decent not great i think it has moments of greatness in the art which is really the main highlight of the series for me but yeah it's not like a must read series for me personally i will note before moving to the next comic that next to the strange chapter we also get the first installment of pulp man profiles where they provide a little bit of a bio and personal information about Ryoichi Kigami with, like, what work he's done prior to this, when did he make his professional debut. Does it talk about the Masturbation Spider-Man page? They they mention Spider-Man, but not Spider-Man jacking off, no. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, we don't get any any insight into why that happened. But I'll mention again, the cover date to this issue is from 1997. So, you know, just a whole different world in terms of, like, ease of information about the manga industry online, easily available in English. And honestly, even a difference in the amounts of how much access people had to the internet in their everyday lives. So, this is just kind of a cool thing that they did in the first several issues did this, where they provided profiles over time about the... Uh, creators behind all of the opening series so that's kind of neat next up in terms of the comics here we have dance till tomorrow this is the series that the smutty looking cover is from story and art are both by 
Naoki Yamamoto. English adaptation is Matt Forn with lettering and touch-up art by Dan Necrosis. And we meet our main character, Suikichi. He wakes up at the beginning of the chapter drunk in his apartment. Well, hungover. Yeah, yeah, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're right. He was drinking the night before. He's sober now. He just feels like shit. <laughs> yeah, that's what I meant. He wakes up um, hungover, and there is a girl he doesn't recognize in his apartment. And she's just like, don't you remember what we did, you animal? And I see animal a lot in this comic, and I am wondering what Japanese phrase that is a translation of it. They clearly sounds more natural in Japanese than it does in English. Who says animal? <laughs> Have you not? And, like, I know I haven't heard it recently, but I know, like, growing up, I've certainly at least, like, seen movies that would, like, joke or, like, use the term, like, animal to, like, joke about, like, a man just fucking and just being, like, a horn dog is what it's going for. Maybe we were watching different movies. <laughs> Maybe I was watching hornier, straight, sexy movies than you were. Probably. In the early <laughs> 2000s, I was watching Doctor Who. <laughs> But, yeah, he doesn't recognize this girl. In 97, I was still watching Thomas the Tank Engine. (laughs) God, yeah. But anyway, he is, like, racking his brain, trying to remember anything from the prior day. And we find out that the day prior was a funeral for his grandfather. But a great-grandfather, I thought. Yeah, it was great-grandfather anyway he somehow seems to have hooked up with this girl at his great-granddad's funeral or at least she's like teasing him like they did we don't get any actual confirmation that they did but she ends up leaving without ever like telling him her name or what exactly happened all he remembers is part of the funeral and then just getting too drunk to remember much of anything beyond that we then move Toward he goes to feeder practice. He is a member of a feeder troupe where he has a big crush on the woman who leads it. I don't know if she's specifically the director. I don't think they give her a specific title in this chapter, but is essentially one of the people who's ahead of this feeder group. She's definitely like directing this play specifically, though. Yeah, she's she's telling them what to do. But also, I think she's in it. Like, there's, like, seven people in this room. And he's not on stage. He's definitely just, like, a stage hand or, like, doing props and stuff. Yeah, when we say feeder troupe, this is specifically, like, an indie company struggling a lot financially to put on shows. It's not affiliated with a school. They don't even have, like, the limited budget of a school. It is very much just this small collective of people who love what they do and are just struggling to do it. And yeah, there's this guy who, I don't know that I'll even actually call him Suikuchi's friend, but just this guy there who had called his place earlier and the girl picked up. So now he's teasing Suikuchi about how, oh, did you hook up with a girl at a funeral? Jesus, man, what an animal. It's like multiple people use it multiple times. I don't know. It just strikes me as odd. Yeah, I think it's just, like, meant to be a gag, but... See, yeah, you said this was a sex comedy. It It's not unfunny, but it's not funny. Yeah, and... Maybe it gets funnier when it gets raunchier, 
But right now, it, it honestly, this is just not... It's fine. That's about how I feel about it. I wasn't bored. Yeah, I think that Yamamoto has, like, solid comic storytelling fundamentals. Like, I think that the progression of events is always pretty clear, and I think he does a pretty good job, like, pacing this opening chapter. You know, like, I think it has, like, solid construction. This is all very much just, like, premise building. I think your taste will vary as the series progresses in terms of just, like, how effectively funny one actually thinks it is and how sexy one thinks it is i think it's kind of disgusting (laughs) but (laughs) out of all the series in this book or in in the magazine rather this is one of the ones that's least for me because again a straight sex comedy i'm the last person who's the audience for that but i do appreciate like his just basic fundamentals of like he knows how to pace a story i think he's got a pretty solid style his characters are quite emotive i like the joke that like comes up for the first time here and is repeated throughout the series of just like the humanizing detail of our protagonist has a bald spot that he's always like trying to keep covered with a cap but that like the mystery girl will point at to tease him and bother him and i don't know i just think this does a pretty good job like establishing our protagonist is just like He's this college student that doesn't actually care about his studies, and he's thinking about quitting to have more time for the theater he loves, and it's all just sort of a... I kind of got the impression he just wants to quit so he can spend more time around the girl he's got the crush on. Yeah, yeah, which, He doesn't seem to have anything else on his mind other than just girl and other girl and confusion. It's very American Pie or the in-betweeners if you're a Brit. Yeah, But I think less witty than the in-betweeners is. Yeah, I think the sort of basic conceit is very much in line with those tonally. And he gets home from theater practice. The confusion and the other girl return because he walks in and there's a man who he vaguely remembers from the funeral, doesn't remember all of what they talked about. And the man tells him that he's there to discuss the matter of the great-grandfather's inheritance which he is leaving to Suikichi, and they do the obligatory watch the video of the old man giving his last will and testament, and the old man is talking about... Honestly, some of the some of the funnier bits in the chapter are from here. I'll just read a little bit of it. By the time you see this, I will have departed this world. I'm sure the vultures swarmed down on my funeral in droves, hoping for a piece of my property. Of course, not a single one of them came to see me when I was alive. And it's basically just him being like, you are the only one to ever spend time with me, so I'm leaving my inheritance to you. Now, Suikichi hasn't visited this man since elementary school, and the girl remarks that, oh, maybe he was getting senile, and that's just what he remembered. But he has left Suikichi not money directly, but his stamp collection, which is valued at approximately 450 million in, or as it's converted here at the time, roughly four and a half million dollars. And when- 97. Yeah, like 25 years ago even. So even better than it would be now. Life-changing. I would like it. I just, I, 
occasionally I remember that, like, this year it's been 10 years since Dogtooth's 50th anniversary, and I'm like, I watched that during my first year of college. That cannot be fucking right. <laughs> yup. And yet, somehow, pandemic years don't count, though. But essentially, he immediately is just like, oh, can I just do anything with that money? And the... He wants to fund the fear to troop with it. I'm like, this is why he has no thoughts, only girl. Literally, he's just like, well, I'll use it for the feeder troop. But they keep watching the video, and the like, great... Buy a house! Truly. Buy some property, and then, like, also fund the... Like, <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, and so the great-granddad continues on the video. Maybe I should put a condition on it. You can only have it after you've finished college, gotten married, and established a career. And during this discussion, um, the mystery girl keeps interrupting the video and keeps bothering the other two as they're trying to talk. And at one point, the inheritance manager is just like, can you tell your sister to stop interrupting us? And Suakichi's just like, that's not my sister. I thought she came with you. And they both realize that they don't know who this girl in the apartment is. And so the ending of the chapter is both of them turning to look at her and going, who is this girl? And then the next page is previewing the next part is a lot of naked drawings of, I assume, this girl. Yes. With the text, Suakichi and Aya's. I don't think they name drop her here in this chapter, but her no, name is they Aya. Mention it at all. Yeah, Mystery Girl's Aya. It says, Suakichi and Aya's relationship really heats up. Sizzle. Sizzle. And it's these panels of him performing Cunnilingus on her. So, from chapter two, from issue two, Pulp will become manga for grown-ups. It's weird how much the first chunk of this reads as though this could be like a high school relationship dramedy thing. And then immediately it's like, next time, a whole page of cunnilingus. Yeah, it's literally like, now we're glad you bought this because you saw the adult label on the cover. And if you're reading this and you're disappointed, don't worry, we're making sure you know the porn is coming. I mean, the first story was very adult. Yeah, the Strain first story was pretty was very adult. adult very mature subject matter that I absolutely would put a mature rating on, even if they hadn't drawn quite as much as they did of those subject matters. I still would have put, like, a rating on it just for, like, the content. That yeah. was exploring some actual adult themes. This is a very, like, as I said, the, it reads as a high school dramedy, except, you know, they're college age, so it's okay, but we're gonna draw them all naked next issue. Basically, yeah. Which, like, I fully support... Uh, that fucking Velma show should have just been set in college if you were going to open with all of them naked in a locker room. So, there's your hot Velma content for this. I shouldn't have said that like that. That's the wrong way of saying it. I just there's said... your hot <laughs> Velma content. Oh, God. There's, there's, there's my judgment of the Velma TV show that I haven't watched, because why the hell would I watch that? I would rather watch an actual Scooby-Doo show. But yeah, like you said, this is very much like it reads like a dramedy. I think it really leans more into the comedy side than drama in the series. To this day, having read it in full, I'm not fully sure how I feel about Dance Till Tomorrow. Because I can appreciate this artist's like basic fundamental skills at just like crafting a story. 
because comics are hard. And I think this could have been a lot worse. But it's not aimed at me. And, you know, that's not a bad thing. But it's simply, like, not my usual cup of tea. And while I like some of the comedy and some of the, like, cartooning choices, it's another one that's just like, it's fine. I hate the logo. Yeah, the English logo is these, like, letters that are inconsistently standard or italicized and like what's incons- different fonts there's like four different fonts that they're swapping between randomly and it's like weirdly consistent and also inconsistent in a way that really bothers me yeah it's not great speaking of not great the third comic in pulp is heartbroken angels story and art by masahiko kikuni english adaptation is benjo wadoko and lettering and touch-up art once again by Kato. It's just a series of weird four-panel things that are meant to be jokes, but are actually just, like, weird creepy sex things, and they're terrible. What you just said applies not just to this first issue's wharf, but to the entirety of Heartbroken Angels. I will say that. It's crap. There's not even anything to discuss beyond pointing and saying, what the fuck is that? Why did you do that? How did you disappoint me so much in a four-panel joke thing? And then you just did it four times a page for three pages. Yeah, I don't think we've covered any gag manga or really any gag series on the show thus far. You know, like, there's certainly... Virtually everything will have, like, jokes or comedic elements, but this is the first just, like, entire comedy thing. thing. This is is like a, a newspaper comic in its layout when you're like getting a collected edition of them and there's like you know you've got like a page full of those four panel things so if you're wondering what this looks like that's just what it that's what it looks like it's like looking at a calvin and hobbes book but it's not good yeah format wise it's just like the four panels are stacked vertically instead of horizontally at some point i'm sure i'll pick a comedy manga for you to read and i'll pick one that's much better than this there's funny comics they exist yeah just not here just not this one on the podcast manga splaining there's an episode where they talked about this series briefly and one or more of the hosts there have either currently or in the past worked at viz uh viz being the company that published pulp and i believe one of the hosts commented on just like were they paid to put this into the magazine is that how this wound up in here no but (laughs) basically like commented on like the difficulty of like translation and humor and if i remember correctly i think there were like parts in the series where they effectively just had to write new dialogue because like the japanese jokes weren't really translatable in a way that made sense which is another sort of difficulty with translation you know it's like sometimes there's no way to make a reference make sense to an English context, and if you're doing it in a super short four-panel time frame, that can just make it all the more difficult. Okay, but on this first page, it has a joke about this guy wearing a woman's panties on his head, and then she puts his panties on her head, and that's the joke. And that's in the art. I'm I looking at it sideways. I can't actually read it right now. Yeah. So I'm, it's still not good. Yeah, I'm more sort of talking about, I guess, like the series overall than as opposed to these specific strips with that mark but yeah it's a bunch of bad sex jokes like there's one where 
it's a guy who likes being humiliated. And as he's having sex with this woman, he's telling her to go farther. And she's just like, is this tiny cock of yours some kind of joke? Your comics are duller than dirt. And then afterward, he's crying because she insulted his comics. And it was too humiliating. There's another point. I mean, I would say the same thing. About this man's comics. Yeah. Yeah, they're bad. I mean, I wouldn't say to his face, I'm not that rude. There's another one here where it's like a life drawing class. There's the naked model. A student lifts up her skirt. And then the model unwillingly gets an erection. And all of the artists get mad because he got an erection while he's naked modeling. Um, speaking as the token straight man, that doesn't work. Just flashing a panty doesn't instantly give you an immediate boner. Especially when everyone's looking at you, can you eat? What? (laughs) That's not even... Maybe some other straight men are different, but that would not fucking look on me, I can tell you that much. It's all just very by-the-numbers sex comedy. Well, not literally all, like there are other types of jokes, but... It's almost entirely sort of raunchy, gross-out humor, both in this issue strips and in the series going forward in Pulp. And Several names recur, and I'm like, are these meant to be the same people? I will Is this, like, some incontinuity stuff going on? I will say that, yeah. There are multiple characters who recur throughout the strips. There's, like, several recurring. They're all terrible... You haven't even met the worst of them yet, I don't think. Great. Well, that's a good reason for me to never read any more of this. And it's a good reason for you to never make me read any more of this. What if I just go on eBay? As opposed to having you read, like, Pulp Issue 2, what if I specifically buy the the Heartbroken Angels graphic novel and make you read all of it? You made me read since past. episode of this podcast. You made me read since since past. past had we we had something we could talk about there and dissect with this we said they're bad jokes about sex it's weird that's all we have to say about at least with since past there was like a context we could get into there's like stuff you could dissect about what the work is doing what it's commenting on when it comes to like night when stacy died the history of the characters after the fact like what conditions like we talked about the pacing of it like there's stuff there to talk about there's there's nothing here it's just the yeah this comic is everything i hate about straight culture and culture in general and humanity and humans forming societies and making art and showing it to each other this is the comic that you make the person who has to push the button to fire a nuclear bomb read so that when the order comes in he's willing to do it yeah we can go ahead and move on. There's nothing <laughs> else to say. I'm with that. I apologize, everyone. <laughs> it's fucking terrible. It's literally, in this issue, there's like three and a half pages of it, and they are three and a half of the worst pages of comics we've yet discussed on this podcast. Well, you know why he, he made this comic? He's got a humiliation kink. This was it, his grand plan. He tells us in the first one. <laughs> literally self-insert in the first strip. But, yeah. I mean, that is literally a self-insert. It's a comic book creator. That, that's a self-insert character. Yeah. This is this is a Grant Morrison-style comic ink suit to go into the comic and live that in that world. Don't invoke Grant Morrison's <laughs> name while we're looking at this. <laughs> anyway, let's move on to the next one, because I also don't like this one very much. So we can, we can move on. Well, this one, I don't get this one. 
I think... I fully don't get this one. Yeah, I can't blame you for that. But I will say at least there's certainly much more going on here. Oh, it's... it's. I'm not dismissing this one. Yeah. I, I, it, most bad comics I read I don't dismiss. That one I dismiss. Because that one I don't even have anything to talk about. This is stuff to talk about. I just don't get it. We're discussing the first chapter of Black and White. This would later be re-released as Tech on Kencrete. Story and art is by Tayo Matsumoto. English adaptation credit Annette Roman. Lillian Olsen is credited on translation. And lettering and touch-up art are by Cynthia Burkst. Now, I've read a lot of Matsumoto work, and my impression with most of them is that it's usually a bit hard to follow narratively, but I love looking at the art. And essentially plot-wise, just so you know what we're talking about, up front, Black and White is essentially about two young orphan kids. I can't remember if they are blood brothers or if they're just, you know, like brothers in circumstance, but they're called Black and White, and White is the more childish of the two. I'm not sure if he's literally younger or just that much more immature, and they don't have parents in their lives. They basically live and fend for themselves in this city, get in lots of trouble to involve beating up on people, you know, and just being unsupervised hellions. They might be able to fly? Question mark? Yeah, they can't literally fly, but they're okay. like constantly like jumping around buildings. I was a bit like, is this a Peter Pan thing? <laughs> no, it's not a literal Peter Pan thing. It's just... My cat is opening the door. Hello. Hi, birds. Were you mad that we were in here without you? But yeah, they can't literally fly. It's just the adults just he being... He means when he says fly through the city, he means that they can get through really fast. Like, they're doing parkour. Basically. Cool. Like... Great. I, some of the art, I was like, he seems pretty high up. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely... That's a difficult place to reach. Yeah, like, it's definitely meant to read, like, fantastically and not entirely grounded in reality, certainly. It's like a magical realism kind of vibe, yeah. Sure, yeah. This is the one where I understood what was happening the least. Yeah, they basically just sort of run around town. We get a scene where some policemen are talking to each other and give us a little bit of obligatory information, just being like, they're orphans, they run around causing trouble... And, yeah, that's basically really all that happens here plot-wise in Chapter 1. It's a pair of orphans running around getting into trouble, and Black is clearly, like, a bit more mature and, like, caretaker over White. And the thing that makes Matsumoto work notable for me is never the plot, but is just the art is very distinctive. The cityscapes in particular, this, like, environment that the kids are living in and interacting with in the comic. When I say that it looks like a child drew it, I don't mean that super literally. It breaks a lot of perspective rules, but in ways that are clearly very intentional to create. It's a very, like, distorted, weird environment that is presumably from the viewpoint of the kids, how they see it. Exactly. It's, like, very skillfully done. It's very good. 
Yeah, like there's the opening two-page spread where, like, the buildings are, like, leaning and windows in various sizes and just, like, all the architecture wouldn't actually work, you know? Like, it's not realistic buildings, but it's all just really engaging to look at and just really striking and... There's a bunch going on, like you said, of perspective and the size of objects. And it's always just really interesting to look at as you sort of follow these kids around, even if it's like it doesn't hold the reader's hand in terms of plot and narration. But I still don't mind it because any Matsumoto comic for me is all about just like looking at this really unique visual style that I think is a lot of fun even if I think that the actual writing I don't think it's bad you know like there's no part where I'm just like oh you know it's just like it's just happening yeah it's very not concrete it's just sort of a vibe it's a complete vibe as these kids just run around beaten up on shits in this fantastical like sort of like you know like fantastical but not like magic beasts but just like this is a city where like you said it feels like the kids point of view where it feels distorted and big and imposing and malleable in a way that's really interesting visually yeah do you have any last thoughts no, no, I mean, that's it. That the, the art's the main thing that I was like, okay, yep, the art's really cool and interesting. And yeah, I, I didn't understand the, the plot. I was like, okay, and then stuff happens with children. One of them is definitely less mature than the other, you know, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's black and white. Yep. And the last of the five comics in this opening issue of Pulp is Banana Fish. This is like your favorite. This is not only my favorite manga or my favorite manga in pulp, this is my favorite comic, period. Exactly. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I didn't understand a thing that was happening in this, because all the blonde people look the same, and there's three of them. That's fair, and we'll talk about it. <laughs> That's... <laughs> you could just come in. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> My cat can open doors because he's a velociraptor from Jurassic Park. Yeah, but this is uh, Banana Fish Chapter 1. Story and art are by Akimi Yoshida. English adaptation here is credited to Matt Forn with lettering and touch-up art by Kato. Historical context-wise, Banana Fish started in the mid-80s and ended in the early 90s. So by the so time... the 80s stuff is contemporaneous to when the comic was being created. Okay. Yes, okay. this is set... I assumed so, but... Yeah, or at least, like, contemporary to when it started. Because, like, even though the manga lasted, like, 10 years real time, the events are only, like, two years worth in canon. Okay. But, yeah, it's uh, mid-80s America, like, Reagan era, centered around New York City. So when they brought this over in Pulp, this is being published in English for the first time over a decade after the comic had initially started running. It's the oldest series in Pulp. And it and Dance Till Tomorrow are the only series that lasted the entire magazine's history. You know, the other series that it started with either finished or got moved out and the new things replaced them. You mean uh, Dance Tomorrow is the one that lasted? 
Yeah, Banana Fish and Dance Till Tomorrow are the two that are in every issue of Pulp. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good news sure. for you as you continue reading. Um, and Banana Fish, because it's a 10-year-long manga, by the time Pulp got canceled, had not finished. They then moved it into another magazine that Viz was still publishing. Then that one got canceled. And so this initial translation of Banana Fish was never finished, and it wasn't until years later that they started a new translation and did a release of Banana Fish that actually completed the story in English. So there's two versions of Banana Fish in English. This is the first one, and it was never completed. But the chapter opens up not in New York, but with a flashback to early 70s Vietnam, where a troop, a company, squadron, whatever the proper term for this group of soldiers is. Just squad? Squad, sure. Just sort of hanging out. They're not in the middle of combat right now. So there is... There's the black guy in the sunglasses with the mustache. There are three identical blondes who are clearly identical triplets. And then there is someone who looks very similar to them but has slightly shaggy hair and glasses. Yeah, four very similar-looking white men. One of them's in glasses, so I can tell when it's him. This was kind of my main issue with it, was everything here I I thought was good, probably, but literally there's, like, this scene right here, there's these three white people in this panel. There's the three blondes, and then on the next page, one of them starts shooting at the others, and I can't tell which one of them it is. Yeah. I think that's a fair critique. Yoshida's style definitely, you know, has a lot of sort of same face syndrome going on. She has specific faces that she draws. It's like a Mark Bagley comic, but without, like, the colors to help. I think... I I say that with a lot of appreciation for Mark Bagley, but, um, Mary Jane and... Oh, God. Liz. Liz. What's... What's... Alan. Liz Allen are the exact same teenage girl in different hair colors. I think that's, you know, a fair critique. It definitely makes sense. I think that as... The way the panels are laid out and stuff, this feels like a modern comic in a way that even some of the others haven't. Like, the pacing's really good. I just can't tell what's happening. Yeah, I agree. I do like Yoshida's skill with pacing and, like, panel layout and progression. And the art's good! That's the other thing. I'm like, I, I think this would be my favorite of this volume if I understood it. And I don't not understand it in a part one way. Honestly, it's just this bit. Yeah, it's really this opening scene where that's the problem. Not that, you know... Because then I don't know which one of these three blondes is the one we see in the other half in the 80s. And I feel like it's important. I'm like, is this the blonde who was shooting at people? Did that blonde die? Is he one of the other blondes? Was he getting shot at? I can't tell. Right. Not that there's literally none of it ever after this, but I think that this scene is easily the biggest example of that problem in the series. And I think that... I don't think there's ever a moment after this where it's nearly as much of a problem. You know, I think it's just sort of unfortunate that it's right up off the bat first impression. And I'll also say over time, Yoshida's art, she sort of gets a feel for how she wants individual characters to look. And they sort of like 
slightly change as she pins down exactly what she wants each person to look like, and it differentiates them more a bit. I also think if I had, like, a full volume of this rather than just this chapter, I would have less of an issue because I'm sure that it would be explained a bit more and then I would understand. But right now, my confusion is, like, not... I, there's no other way from... There's no other context for me to figure out any of this story. Yeah, I'll go ahead and do the basic, like, plot rundown. Yeah, so in Nam, Before the shooting starts, during their chit-chat, um, they mention that... There's rumors of some sort of drug going around that really fucked someone up. And shortly after that, into the chit-chat, they notice another one of their squad mates. His name is Griffin, or Griff for short. He shows up. They assume he's just been going to the bathroom. But he shows back up. Everyone's just like, what's up, man? And he's non-responsive. He's just sort of staring blankly. He's very non-verbal. And he pulls out this gun and starts shooting at the rest of the squad mates. So it's the one who walks up who pulls out the gun. Yeah, the one who's been missing from the conversation at the beginning. Okay, great. That does make the most sense, but as I said, I couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. He shoots them. Some of them are dead. Some of them manage to, like, escape. And another one of the blonde men, or at least, like, Reed's blonde here. I think he's actually brunette. But, like, the color's not filled in. Anyway, another one of the, you know, hard-to-tell-apart white men. They don't say... I don't think... It's very white man of them to be hard to tell apart. Yeah. I don't think they say his last name here, but his name is Max Lobo. And he grabs a gun, and he shoots Griffin in the kneecaps to make him drop the gun and stop shooting at the rest of the squad mates. And real quick before the rest of the scene, I'll note that the shots of the shooting are very well done because while most of the comic the like background details are you know like like blank white page you know of like lines you know black inking on them during the shooting we get these panels of like foreground white happening juxtaposed across a black background where the blood is like spatters of white against the black. And I think it's pretty cool and effective. It is, and I mean this in a nice way, very like Frank Miller's Sin City. In like the good ways that you could take that to me. I don't want to compare someone's good art to Frank Miller's more recent art, but it's like a good use of, yeah. An example of why Frank Miller was popular to begin with. Yeah. I miss 80s Frank. But yeah, essentially, they shoot Griffin in the kneecaps to make him stop attacking. He's salivating, he's clearly sweating, he's clearly been drugged of some sort, is not in his right mind. And Max tries to talk to him, you know, just as like, it's me, it's me, it's Max. And the stuttering Griff says, Banana banana fish i saw dot 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 and his ramblings so there's your title drop banana fish Is banana fish the drug i will not comment because they haven't explicitly stated what it is in this chapter yet but good guess the drugs are gonna be important and after this we move forward in time a little over 10 years to 1985 
where the police are discussing a series of really bloody and dramatic deaths of these wealthy people, like um, stockbroker type people, people involved with the mob. Yeah, they're, they're all, they're not crime bosses, but they're all like high up, like white collar criminals, was what I got. Exactly, yeah. These are the people who were responsible for the uh, financial crash. Yeah, exactly. It's that sort of high up criminal type. And, or not even necessarily like particularly high up, you know, depending how high you want to say that, but it's that sort of white collar thing. And they've been offing themselves in these mysterious bloody ways, or like they're discussing like, you know, the suicide versus murder of it. And just how strange these happenstances are. There is a brief mention that there are going to be some Japanese reporters arriving here soon in a few days. They were supposed to meet up with Max Lobo, who works here with the police. Except he, I don't believe they specifically say why in this chapter yet but they just remark that he's not currently available and what are they going to do about those reporters we don't see those reporters yet in chapter one which they're very important you haven't met one of the two main characters yet of this series part of this it is chapter one yeah part of the thing of only getting you one chapter but you do meet the other main character and of the two the one who's like the main main character is Ash Lynx, who... Is he one of the blondes from the opening? No. Yeah, he's not, which just it's back just to the same face. blonde. Yeah. Who looks exactly like, okay. I assumed he, I was like, but which one is he? Was my whole thing when I was reading this. I'm like, which blonde is this? Different blonde. Ash is much younger. He is a teenager. Um. Okay, I couldn't tell that either. Yeah, like I said, Yoshida does a lot of work on, like, sort of feeling out what the characters look like over time. So, like, if I showed you a page of, like, the final volume, Ash looks way different. And just sort of, like, a gradual, like, style shift, as opposed to, like, you know, a plot reason. I admire that. I like watching as an artist's work, like, evolves over time. That's always very cool. Yeah, that's part of... Part of the joy of Banana Fish is this comic ran for 10 years and you get to... Because it's like, you know, like, I love this early stuff. Like, I still like Yoshida's style, but it's also interesting to, like, see how she moves and improves over time. But we get this young man walking around the Lower East Side and a bleeding man is stumbling around in an alleyway, comes up to him passes ash something we don't get to see what it is and he's like stumbling he's not making a lot of sense and he says 42 westwood los angeles and then he murmurs something in ash's ear that we'll find out in a later chapter what the rest of what he said is but for here it's just mumbling does he say banana fish what a great guess (laughs) mayhaps and which was another reason why i assumed that this was one of the blondes from the beginning because i'm like he's probably whispering banana fish right that would make sense he must know what this means because he reacts to it well it is fretting the needle you know between the vietnam stuff and the police and this yeah it's it's 
the drug needle, yeah. The lack of other context made me try and draw a lot of connections here that simply don't exist, apparently, so... Well, there will be more connections that you find, it's just that this isn't Max, because, you know, the same face stuff we talked about. Yeah. But then two more young men come running after Ash asks them what this is about. Essentially, the relationship going on here is that Ash is their gang leader, and they got hired to off this man by someone named Papa Dino, who you haven't met yet in chapter one. It's a great name. For just the most horrible man. Horrible man. But yeah. Um, as they're talking, they hear police sirens. They know they need to get out of the way. Ash tells them to go away, get out, and he'll talk to Dino and deal with him. Chases them off. It's very clear that even though, like, he's their gang leader, they did this not on Ash's orders, and so he's pissed off. And the last page skips forward slightly in time to Ash arriving at Dino's place, just saying, I want to see Dino. He's here, isn't he? Talking to this man who's not yet named, but it's not a spoiler to tell you. His name is Marvin, just works for Dino. It's just Ash rolling up at Dino's place, ready to confront Papa Dino. And that concludes, I think this is up there of strain as like the chapter one in the issue that like has the most going on. Yeah. Because you have the whole Vietnam thing. It's the other one that I really quite liked. It's, as I said, the blonde thing was just very confusing. I am glad you liked it, <laughs> despite that. But yeah, you've got the Vietnam thing. Then you have the whole police thing. You have the beginning of introducing Ash and Papadino. And like the drug Fred going on throughout all of it. I guess now that we've established all the plot stuff, I guess I'm just interested... What else do you have to say about Banana Fish? Anything that stuck out to you or like what you personally enjoyed as someone who's not already incredibly biased towards it? I like the motion lines. Yeah, they're fun. Like Yoshida loves a fucking motion line. There's like a lot of very good motion line usage. I don't understand enough of it to have a lot more to say other than, yeah, the art is, aside from the same face thing, the art is great. There's like a lot of just like great composition and like, the where panel layouts feel like I thought this was a lot. I thought this was a '90s book. Yeah. When I read this, I assumed this was published like not that much longer before this was actually out. This being ten years older than it is has me actually very impressed with the way that it's paced and the pages are laid out because it reads as a much more modern comic than it actually is. Yoshida is the goat. <laughs> like that's great. And the thing about like the layouts is like. Yoshida... Like, this is mid-80s, so this is, like, contemporaneous with all the things that invented modern comics in America, and this looks like those. That's great. You're doing this at the same time as, like, over in America, you've got stuff like Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen happening, basically. Yeah. 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 I think it... I'm pretty sure it's older than both of those. At yeah, least Watchmen. It's, it's yeah, started, yeah. Yeah, and... Because I think Returns is 86, I want to say. Yeah, Banana Fish started in either 84 or 85. I think it ran from 85 to 94. Yeah, and, like, those are what I think sort of brought that, like, the, the way that comics are paced now. I mean, 
you have Tom King doing all of his nine-panel grid shit all the time, and that's literally just the pacing from Watchmen. That is how you pace comics now most of the time. Yeah, and part of the thing with the skill and what Yoshida does is that, like, Yoshida doesn't do particularly, like, fluid or experimental panel layout. Like, there's no, like, New 52 Batwoman-esque anything. It's like everything is a square or a rectangle, but she's just really good at placement and, like, using motion lines and the rest of the composition to guide the eye. So, you know, like, what a character will stare in a direction and it'll lead you in the correct way to, like, the focal point of the next panel. And it's all just, like, it's, like, a on paper really basic, like, comic storytelling stuff. But because she's so good at it, it just does such great things for the flow of action for me. And, yeah... Unfortunately, yeah. there's the same face stuff, but I love it. It's it's not, you know, Frank Quitely, but it's great. <laughs> I'll have to bring you back to this. <laughs> I... I'll read more of this, absolutely. Hell yeah. Like I said, Banana Fish is my Just favorite. Give me a bigger chunk of it. <laughs> Gladly. And maybe scribble which blonde person it is on all the panels for me. <laughs> I'll just have to give Just you... pencil it in on all, each panel. Just like, is this one... This is Max, and this is Jim. It'll get better over time, differentiation-wise. I'll give you, like, 50-some tastes of this as we keep reading Pulp, and you get to keep up with Heartbroken Angels, too. Oh, if we ever do another issue of Pulp, we are just skipping Heartbroken Angels. I don't have anything else to say about it, unless there's something especially offensive coming up, or an entire change in format and style and sense of humor. I just don't think there's, there's nothing there. Well, we get strips that have, like, literal bad, crude gay jokes, so it actually only gets more offensive and makes me actively wish bad things for the creator. Okay, you know, that's fair. We could, as I said, if there's something more offensive, we can talk about that. This is all straight humor. It's bad straight humor. I don't get it. Yeah, but yeah, that's Heartbroken Angels and Banana Fish. We've talked about all the comics in Pulp. Pulp also would run various articles and columns, largely focused around Japanese culture things, to include, like, talking about music. They would do reviews of Japanese films and other comics. There's a few such things in this first issue. We haven't talked about them, and I didn't tell you to read them, because, at best, I think Pulp's prose stuff is irrelevant and, like, outdated, i.e. the super old reviews. And at worst, a lot of it's just bad. Sorry, all due respect to everyone that worked hard on it or whatever. But a lot of it's just boring or just, you We're know, also like... a comics podcast. Yeah, and it's just like news that's written in a way to be like, you know, its mission was like to introduce American audiences to aspects of Japanese culture that they would have had a much harder time learning about back in 97 you know, so it's, like, of its time, but just reading it now, it just has no relevancy or interest to me. Later in Pulp's run, there's a time where one of the running columns is a series of diary entries by a sex worker, and those are pretty cool, is probably the best stuff. Oh, like, real di diary yes. entries. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that is cool. I was dreading to imagine what that narrative could possibly be if they were coming out with it. It's actual, then that's cool. Yeah, a real sex worker. <laughs> okay, yep, nope, I approve of that. All right. In a less cool, but I still think historically noteworthy notes, 
There's a brief point late in Pulp's run where Warren Ellis writes a couple columns, which I think... That's aged poorly, but I suppose at the time... Exactly, like... In the early 2000s, that would be a get, but also, in hindsight... Exactly, like, at the time, like, a major get, and just, like, Pulp is remembered very fondly, very critically well-received, even though it ended up getting cancelled for sales and just budgetary reasons but is largely looked back fondly for what it tried to do of bringing like adult comics and sort of like non-shonen jumpy things to an english audience in a way that you know i think is cool and i have a whole collection for a reason and i do like the magazine but as we discussed today the actual comics themselves varies by the comic on how good they are in my biased opinion i think it's the banana fish magazine where nothing (laughs) else compares but there are some other things that are cool and fun and then there's heartbroken angels and that's not cool or fun the very least the art looked quite nice in four out of the five comics yeah the gap between heartbroken angels and everything else is so wide (laughs) but yeah that's pulp if you're interested in it you're just gonna have to hunt this shit down never been reprinted no digital versions try ebay i got most of my collection there but you Uh, can find versions of some of the comics in it presumably the banana fish is available somewhere right well that's the thing is at the time they printed graphic novels also collected editions of the comics and pulp But the thing is that most of those are also out of print, so you're going to have a hard time finding any of it. The only stuff that ran in pulp that is readily available in English still is the later second translation of Banana Fish. You can get the whole series in English. And Junji Ito's Uzumaki is available in English. That runs later in the series. Tech on Kincrete, Black and White, might still be in print. It'll at least be more available than some of the stuff, but... Dance Till Tomorrow, Strain, and Heartbroken Angels, you'd really have to try looking for it, and... Don't look for Heartbroken Angels, I don't know why you'd want to do that. I might have to. I'm not actually gonna put that, put you through that. (laughs) I'm never gonna do that, because that'd involve me looking at it and thinking about it critically. (laughs) But, yeah, I think this was fun. I think it's interesting to sort of look at all these series in concert with each other and just sort of experiment with an anthology since we've never done that. Do you have any final thoughts on Pulp or your interest in reading any more of it? I'll read more. I'll skip Heartbroken Angels when I read more, though. Just tell me when we get to the homophobic ones so we can, like, just insult him about that if you want. But other than that... Yeah. That'll wrap (laughs) us up for Pulp, though. Do you want to go ahead and do the announcement for next week's reading? Or next episode, whenever that comes out. Next episode, whenever it happens, who knows. We're going to be a flexible schedule podcast from now on. It'll come out when we do a new episode. Uh, We're reading Doom Patrol, uh, the pronunciation, Tiresias War. This is a story arc from the Rachel Pollock run. So everyone knows Grant Morrison wrote Doom Patrol in the 80s and 90s. Actually, I think just in the 90s. I don't remember the years these came out. Anyway, Rachel Pollock is the person who followed Grant Morrison on the run. And her run on the book went uncollected for so fucking long that there was a Doom Patrol TV show that got to three seasons 
before they collected her run. And I, they collected it, I got the omnibus and I read it, and it's fucking great. I actually think her run is even better than Morrison's. And this was my favorite story arc, so reading that. Yeah, I've read it already. It's good. It'll be fun to talk about. It'll be another nice sort of, you know, less talked about, less known story to get the spotlight for a minute. It is on DC uh, Unlimited now. Um, it's issues 75 to 79 of Doom Patrol Volume 2. So not the one from the 60s, the other one. The one from... It started in the late 80s. I just don't know whether Morrison started... Whether it hit, like, 1990 before Morrison was writing. I don't know. Doesn't matter. But, yeah. Anyway, thank you all for listening. We hope to get you new episodes at least a little more frequently than we have been, which is to say... At all. To record <laughs> at all again. So... Well, hopefully we're recording again next week. Yeah. But like I, I i don't know we were gonna we were gonna be recording two weeks ago but then i got what was probably covid so yeah things just kept happening but we'll see you when we see you thank you for listening and bye bye Chris, 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 Chris. Oh, oh, oh.